we are in the third week of a sermon series taken at the end of the book of Isaiah. As we look at the songs of the servant, there's this mysterious figure at the end of Isaiah called the servant of the Lord. And the question that every Jew was asking was, who is God talking about here? Who, who is it that God's referring to? Because terrible things are prophesied about the servant of the Lord. In the very first sermon of the series, I tried to say that just imagine a 12 or 13-year-old boy who regularly hears the readings from the Torah, the Isaiah scroll, rather, and he's, who is this? Who is this that's being talked about? And hearing this internal voice inside of himself saying, it's you, it's you, it's me. And he's, he's wrestling with his own identity. Uh, that's the picture that I have of Jesus of Nazareth, is, is he... As he's thinking about the servant of the Lord. And I'm fully convinced Jesus had memorized these passages. Like he fully, he had this committed to, to memory entirely, which is going to be significant later on, I think, um, hopefully in the sermon. But here we are on the third servant song, verse chapter 50 of Isaiah verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. Uh, We don't have any pictures of Jesus in the first century, no surprise. But we do know that pretty much every Jewish male in the first century would have had a beard. I, was, I can't remember when I read the article, but it was pretty recently that a team of forensic anthropologists did an extensive study on the skeletal remains of first century Jewish men in order to try to uh, get an idea of, of what Jesus looked like. And they, they took their, that data and they did some other kind of data. They plugged it into computer models to get uh, a representation of, of his face. Not surprisingly, his skin pigmentation was much darker than yours, or uh, at least the majority of us. I mean, he looks very much like a Middle Eastern man with a scraggly beard. But when they, the anthropologists looked at all the, they found that the average height of a first century Jewish man was only five feet one inches tall. And the average weight of a first century Jewish man was only 110 pounds. That's not the picture of Jesus that we have, is it? It's not the picture that Hollywood gives to us. Now, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. And if you remember in the Gospels, there's one place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they say, 
you know what's going to happen to us if we go to Jerusalem. Are you sure you want us to go to Jerusalem? Are we, sure, are we going to do this? And it says, and Jesus says, yes. And he's, in Luke's gospel, he set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he would be handed over to the chief priests and, and so forth. He set his face like flint. Oh, that's powerful. Verse 8. The servant of the Lord says, He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let me confront them. It is the Lord who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Then in writing the liturgy, I... It was just inadvertent, but I omitted the end of that of the next of this verse. Who will declare me guilty? All my enemies will be destroyed like old clothes that have been eaten by moths. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. But you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires, you who have your own little torches, this is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in torment. So this morning's sermon is an atypical sermon. I I didn't tell the first service, and I regretted not telling them, you know, the truth and disclosure at the beginning of the sermon, not having done that for them. I'm going to do it for you. And that is well, we're going to, where I'm going is I want to narrate a long series of events and then we'll come back to Isaiah 50 near the end of this sermon. Long narration, Isaiah 50. You know, many Jews in the ancient world believed that when the Messiah returned, he would do so either on the Mount of Olives or there he would be crowned as Israel's king on the Mount of Olives. You just wonder, when the Jewish leaders heard from Judas Iscariot that Jesus and his disciples had retired to an olive grove on the Mount of Olives, if they didn't think that this was kind of a moment of poetic justice, that after all, you know, the the messianic pretender, he and his protégés are going to be arrested on the Mount of Olives. You wonder if they were uh, sort of sneering and laughing to themselves. They they were probably pretty nervous. They were nervous about the success of the operation. In in order to capture Jesus, they would have to do so, you know, in the middle of a forest glade, so to speak, with trees in the pitch black darkness, where he and his disciples, they would easily have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to escape. And the soldiers that they sent to apprehend him, they were not the Delta Force. <laughs> uh, this was not, was not, they weren't even Roman centurions. They were the temple guard, which was basically the Jewish makeshift police force. Maybe it was a volunteer police force, kind of like a you know, volunteer fire department in, the, in rural areas. But I mean, these were not your... The best of the best of the best. This, these were not Navy SEALs. <laughs> but it turned out that the operation went flawlessly. Only one of Jesus' disciples was armed. There was a little kerfluffle at the beginning where I, I think he pulled his sword and he 
swung it around a little bit, and Jesus yelled at him, and he put it, put it back in its scabbard. You know that in the story, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, has his ear chopped off. And my guess is that the whole thing, because it was dark, happened so quickly, nobody even realized what was going on. Malchus didn't even realize what was going on. Like Jesus, he picked that ear off the ground so quick and you know, slapped it next to, next to the side of his head so quick. Even Nobody knew that a healing miracle had taken place. They got him. The, the disciples, uh, they were this huddled little mass on the edge of the grove. As they saw that they were outnumbered, they scampered away and lost themselves in the darkness of the trees. Where did Jesus go first? He went to the house of Annas, A-N-N-A-S, who was the previous high priest before he was deposed, um, I forget, in the year. but And there in the house of Annas, he was interrogated. This was a preliminary trial. It wasn't the real deal. Jesus knew that it wasn't the real deal. So as he's, been in, as he's being asked questions like, you know, uh, how big is your movement? Who are your chief supporters? What is your doctrine? What are you telling people? Jesus knew that he, he didn't have to answer. So all he did was reply that my teachings are a matter of public record. I taught openly in the synagogue and temple. Go ask the people what I said. When Jesus says this, one of the temple guards you know, backhands him, slaps him across his face for his impertinent answer to Annas, the former priest. No, I don't know how long that this preliminary trial lasted, but once they... I guess, decided that the accused would be non-cooperating and they weren't getting anywhere with them. They ended up taking him to the real trial, to the palace of Caiaphas. You look it up online, you can see a real place in the first century Jerusalem, to the palace of Caiaphas where he would, the accused would stand trial before the great Sanhedrin. What's the great Sanhedrin? The Great Sanhedrin was the supreme court of ancient Judaism. Seventy men, plus the high priest, so 71. They would convene at times in the, this palace, but never at night. The, uh, the, the Sanhedrin would never conduct a case at night. This, this case that they're about to try on Good Friday is unprecedented for its ele- ele- uh, how do you say it? Illegality. It's entirely illegal. But 70 men file into this room and form a semicircle around Jesus in the center and Caiaphas, who's the presiding judge there uh, with him. And here's how it might have played out. Caiaphas, clad in his official garments, called the Sanhedrin to order and opened the case by soliciting witnesses who had any evidence to bring against Jesus. As you know, that you may know that in Jewish law, you need to have at least two witnesses to corroborate any charge against an accused. A dozen or so people elbowed their way into the front, and there they were formally cross-examined by a Jewish lawyer. Most of the witnesses reported isolated acts in which Jesus had apparently violated the Sabbath, but each of these, uh, um, 
stories, no two were the same. Thus, they didn't meet the Jewish standard of, of two witnesses. What would have otherwise been damaging evidence had to be disallowed. So Caiaphas called for more witnesses. More struggled to the front of the court. Some of them were the riffraff that they had taken off the streets of Jerusalem. But upon examination, they were expelled after their false testimony proved ridiculous. Finally, the Jewish lawyer was able to cement the allegations of two men who agreed that Jesus of Nazareth had said that I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Since any threat against the temple was, it was basically considered a threat against God, that was a capital offense. If it could be proven that you threatened the temple, like, like in a terrorist sense, you would be put to death. And the lawyer knew this. He pursued his line of questioning of these two individuals like a hawk. And he, he almost had it down pat until somebody from the crowd shouted, Yeshua meant the temple of his body, not the great temple. A loud murmuring developed. And Caiaphas, yeah, if he had a gavel, he, he called for order. Have you no answer to the charges these witnesses bring against you? Jesus didn't reply. Legally, Jesus didn't have to reply since no proven evidence had been introduced in the proceedings and everybody knew it. Because of the hasty nature of which the trial was called, they hadn't sufficiently properly vetted their witnesses to make sure that uh, that they had their stories straight. And so... Uh, there was nothing truly incriminating. And if, if, if things didn't change in a couple of minutes, the Sanhedrin would legally be bound to declare him innocent and free, which would send him back on the streets and make him even more popular with the people. Caiaphas knew this. Caiaphas was, was probably massively frustrated at this oversight. Unless a provable charge could be introduced in the next several minutes. Jesus would go free. All eyes. Now, I mean, this. there's a lot of hypothesizing here in, in my retelling of the story. All eyes in the room are on Caiaphas as he stands up at the, wherever he is at, at the tribunal. Apparently, the rules were that if the high priest stands up, everybody in the entire assembly is required to stand up. So you've got 70 men all standing up as Caiaphas walks to Jesus Christ and says, will you not answer these charges? And Jesus was silent. Then perhaps you will respond to this. I adjure you by the living God to tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? By using that kind of uh, oath language, they called it the great oath. And even if an accused was, was adjured by the living God to reply, even, uh, even silence would speak to his guilt. Are you the son of God? And Jesus replies in a very roundabout way. If you go back and look at the, the different gospel accounts, his answer uh, <laughs> is, it could be interpreted in lots of different ways, at least as it's written in the Greek. He says, I am as you have said, I am. (laughs) 
as you have said so, something along those lines, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power of God and glory. So he quotes the book of Daniel there. As far as Caiaphas was concerned, that was what he needed. Even though Jesus had spoken it in a roundabout kind of way, this this reply was enough to constitute blasphemy. So the high priest tears his, his robes, which was kind of a ritual expression of, of I'm in the, I've heard blasphemy. Blasphemy, he cries. Do we need any further witnesses? You've heard this man, what he has said. Now you are the witnesses of his blasphemy. The way that the uh, Sanhedrin would vote, or so I read, I, got, I learned a lot of things historically this week, but the, it would, they would vote youngest to oldest. So the youngest would, would stand up and you know, either say guilty or innocent. They, they would go all the way up to the 71st member, Caiaphas himself, We have no idea of what the vote was, but my guess is that the vote was 69 guilty, zero innocent, two abstentions. I suspect that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were the the two who abstained. If Jesus had been convicted of this crime, the crime of blasphemy, in any other part of Israel in that day... Uh, do you know what the, how you would execute somebody for blasphemy? You would stone them to, to death. What I found out is that the preferred method of stoning is not what we think of, or everybody picks up a rock and decides you know, to be a baseball pitcher. But they would, if they could, they would take the accused to a high precipice, and they'd, they'd shove him off, and he would fall down on the rocks below, and die. It was the require. It was the responsibility of the witnesses to actually be the ones to push. If he survived the fall, then it was the responsibility of the witnesses to drop more rocks down on his body. So, if if Jesus had been convicted pretty much any place else, it would have been the responsibility of these sixty nine men to be the ones who stoned him. So why do I go into that? Well, it's just simply to point out to you that um, if Jesus died anywhere else, Isaiah chapter 50 would never have been fulfilled. I mean, in order to do Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 requires flogging, torture, beating, flaying, slapping, all of that. No, I don't bring it up to give you a sensational, gruesome detail. I'd bring it up to try to point out to you that, like, this was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever born. And what I want to suggest, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, probably the most important, one of the most important questions in the world is, is this type of prophecy real? Is it accurate? Did did events about this man's life get spoken of 700 years before they actually took place? Because if it did, that's a game changer, right? Like, nothing's quite the same if he's the Messiah. And I would suggest nothing really matters. Nothing matters at all if he's not. 
But they didn't stone Jesus Christ. Uh, The Sanhedrin didn't push him off a precipice. And we know the reason that they didn't do so is because he was convicted in the Roman provincial region uh, called Judea. And in places where the Roman government was strong, they reserved the right of execution for themselves. So that's why they go to Pilate the next morning. They, they have to secure the, the judgment of the Roman governor himself. And so very early in the morning, they take Jesus, the accused, and, and several members of the Sanhedrin who function as the witnesses, and the lawyer presents their case before Pilate. Pilate has to basically okay the decision of the Sanhedrin have his own Roman sentence and then order the, the, provide the orders of execution. And all of that is his responsibility. The Jews couldn't do it at all. So, okay, we'll go fast. The fast forward playback button now. Pilate hears that Jesus Christ is a Galilean. He says, oh, Galilee. Where's Galilee? Galilee's in the northern part of Israel. I know. That's not my jurisdiction. <laughs> he says, that's Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. So he sends him off to Herod. And he thinks, finally, I got, ri- I got this messy situation out of, out of my hands. Well, you know the story. Herod examines him, finds that he's not very cooperative, doesn't answer his questions, doesn't, act, doesn't perform the miracle that he's requested to perform. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. And, and Pilate has the problem on his hands again. So we're standing in front of all of the crowd. And they're beginning to cry out. They're murmuring at the very least, but maybe crying out, crucify him. And Pilate replies, why? For what crime? I have not found him guilty of death. I will flog him and then I will free him. So Jesus is brought inside the palace courtyard for his scourging. The captain of the troops and his auxiliaries gather around the prisoner, strip him, because that's what, you know, they would they'd strip him naked and they would tie him either to a post or made it, make him bend over, I guess, a rail or something. They stripped him and they administer the Roman flogging, which, you know, would go down to the bones and, You don't need all those details. Perhaps Pilate witnessed the scene. Perhaps Pilate hoped or half hoped that the stripes would bring Jesus sufficiently to his senses to make a better defense of himself. Because up to this point, Jesus had been silent. Perhaps Pilate intended the scourging to win the sympathy of the people for, for the accused. If you've seen you know, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, like he takes, that, he takes that angle that, I mean, Jesus comes back out to the people so bloody and so miserable that you know, you, he was almost hoping that, that they'll feel sympath, have some sympathetic bones for, for, uh, for him. Now, the only charge which the soldiers knew that had been leveled against Jesus was that he claimed, this pitiful figure somehow claimed to be a king, so the soldiers, they you know, use that theme as part of their mockery. How amusing. They find a dark red, purplish cloak. They drape it around his shoulders. And the men break into a lusty laughter. 
Then one hulking veteran with fat calluses covering his hands goes into the courtyard and he finds a thorn bush and he tears some of it, braids it into a prickly prickly crown, which he solemnly plants onto Jesus' head. And what they're doing is a sham coronation service. A reed is shoved into Jesus' right hand as a scepter to complete his royal ensemble. Then the whole rowdy company of troops fall on their knees and jeeringly salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then, one by one, in pomp and circumstance, they file by to do him honor, slapping his cheeks, spitting in his face, and I'm sure plucking, some of them plucked his beard. And when Jesus refused to continue holding the reed, they took the reed and they beat him with it. They beat the crown of thorns. They beat it into his scalp. And all the while, Jesus said nothing. Now let's come back to Isaiah chapter uh, 50. People, I offered, verse 6, I've offered my back to those who beat me. People strike him on the back, either with, Whips or or rods. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. People pull out the hairs of his beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. People spit on him and he doesn't turn back. He, He doesn't flinch. This is a man who I'm convinced has memorized this song. I mean, he knows it better than you and I know like 80s pop Rock songs that we, we grew, I mean, he, he could, this is recall, instant recall as it's going on. He, he knows it. He, he doesn't hide his face from those who spit on it. He gives his back to the striker, his beard to the one who plucks it. He doesn't cover his face from spitting and humiliation. He does all of it because, because he knows this is him. You know, when you hear stories of people who survived World War II internment camps, concentration camps, or when you hear stories of prisoners of war who are able to like, make it through long periods of torture, and then they come back home to the States, and yet they get asked the question, so how did you make it? How did you pull through that? They almost always will give a response along the lines of, uh, I, had, I had to focus my mind so I wouldn't crack. There's always something, be it a picture of like him and his wife and kids, an image, a song, a poem, a letter. There's something that as they're going through the torture, they've got to like just uh, hone in on it what keeps them from, from cracking. Most Christians, I think, believe that Jesus, during this period, he was honing in on Isaiah chapter 53. We'll come back to 50, we'll get to 53 next week. But that's, you know, the most famous part of the whole Old Testament, right? You know, he's the lamb led to slaughter as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yeah, that's what Jesus did. He was doing 53. He's, you know, he's the passive, passive lamb of God who's, who's going along to the slaughter. But I don't, you know, obviously I don't believe that's the case because there's no reason for him to skip ahead. He's, he's going through verse 6. 
And he knows verses 7, 8, 9, and, and 10. See, I think what's getting Jesus Christ through is a controversial idea, but I think that Jesus Christ is, I think he's angry internally inside. And I think that he's defiantly saying, verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. That's where his mind is at. He who vindicates me is near. Who will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? I think Jesus in this moment is saying, bring it on. I know my vindicator is near. Bring it on. Sunday's a coming. And I think that very much fits with what we know about men, human beings, like males. I mean, every guy in here knows that if some, somebody else tries to utterly humiliate you as a man, like really calls into question your manhood, you don't just sit around and, and feel internally like, oh, passive, <laughs> kumbaya. So, yeah, um, I think that Jesus Christ was saying, bring it on. He who vindicates me is near. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. And, <laughs> and, and you, my enemies, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be crushed at my feet. One day, if you don't bow the knee in something that's not mock homage. He who vindicates me is near. So Pilate reappears in the courtyard and he halts the proceedings. He has Jesus led out before the people. He says, behold the man. I bring out to you a man whom I find no crime in him. You see his scourging, he has, the re- scourging he has received, he punished. You charged him with claiming to be a king. Well, here's your king, wearing the purple but, and crowned with thorns. Pilate thinks that that's going to finally appease the crowd. But the demands for crucifixion are, are droning on to a sickening crescendo. As if the crowd were trying to change Pilate's mind by the sheer force of its sound. The palace square is a writhing mass of shaking fists. Some of the people are holding their arms straight out in cruciform fashion and twitching while yelling, crucify, so that Pilate would not miss the message. Now, this isn't recorded. I don't know if this happened, but what we do know about the Roman justice system, is that in a Roman trial, defendants are usually given three opportunities to change their minds before sentencing. It is possible, maybe even likely, that Pilate asked, Jesus of Nazareth, have you anything to say in your defense? And Jesus did not reply. Jesus of Nazareth, do you have anything to say in your defense? A second time, and there's no response. And a third time, Pilate asks the prescribed question, and he hears nothing in response. Legally and juridically, at this point, he has no alternative. And politically, he knows that there's 250,000 Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem right now for Passover, and he can't run the risk 
of a riot. So he waves his arms overhead to silence the crowd, an indication that he, the judge, is finally ready to pass sentence. He has a golden basin of water brought out to the tribunal and in full view of the multitude, washes his hand in the basin, holds them before the people and says, my hands are clean of this man's blood. Then he looks at Jesus and he says, Starotheto, Starotheto, and to the centurion, let him be crucified. Then the soldiers do it again. And Jesus was not, was not scourged just one time, but twice, where they again strip him and whip him. And again, he offers his back to those who beat me. And again, there's the mocking and the spitting, which finally culminates with him carrying the crossbeam, right? Because when you're crucified, you didn't carry a whole cross out with you. You carried the, the vertical beam. That's put on his lacerated back. And he carries that to Gethsemane, the, you know, Gethsemane, the place of the skull, where they already had the three you know, vertical uh, beams staked into the ground. And it is there that Jesus was crucified. And so I ask you, um, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? If you, if you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, if that describes you this morning, you trust in the Lord, rely on your God. But if you who live in your, but you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires, if you trust not in the Lord your God, this is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in torment. It's the word of the Lord.